This is the word of God, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 through 16. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, not but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account for the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I have complete confidence in you. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. You ever said anything like that? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe your parents said something like that to you? That person did nothing wrong to you. That little boy, that little girl, they ain't got cooties. You can sit next to them, you can play with them. And four years later, you're like, separate, separate. <laughs> Paul is saying, make space in your heart for us. And this is the conclusion to his defense over the last four chapters against the false teachers and the critics that have been saying, what the, the things they've been saying to the Corinthian church. He, almost, he said almost the same thing in chapter 2. You know we haven't wronged anybody. We haven't taken advantage of anybody. You walked with us. You talked with us. You were here with us. You heard the things that we said. We live right here among you. You ever had a hard time letting go of something that you, some grudge or something that you knew that you had no business holding on to in your heart, but for some reason you had a real hard time letting that go? I thought maybe you made fun of me. I thought you were trying to hurt me. But then I find out that the reason you did it and what you meant and how you said it wasn't exactly what I was thinking to begin with, right? But I still, I hold on to these hurt feelings. Chris, my wife upsets me because she says something, so what do we do? We argue, right? 
And in the midst of it, I realized that what I thought she meant wasn't what she meant after all. But we're feuding now. I can't admit fault. <laughs> There's got to be a great explanation for it, man. When you think about the fact that she's married to me and she puts up with as much junk as she puts up with, she's got to love me. So it's gotta, there's got to be a reason for it. Yet I still have these, these stupid feelings, right? In the moment, even though I know these feelings are wrong. And the longer I think about things, and the more I ponder these things in my heart, and the more, the madder I get, my heart starts to make sense of everything, but my head still struggles. And I think that's exactly what Paul's saying here. You know everything is good, so please, after everything makes sense, after everything falls in its place, Make room for us in your hearts again. Sometimes other people would tell us how they'd handle things a little bit different, right? Maybe just to, to kind of make us feel bad or make us feel wrong. I never would have done it like that. And they'd take that knife and they'd drive it in a little further. That's what you need. And Paul is talking truth here, man. They didn't, they didn't do anything wrong here. He wasn't trying to make them feel bad. He was just trying to help them to understand that they, they needed to make room in their hearts. You were in my heart, and I'd literally live for you, and I'd literally die with you. But I'm being bold because I love you, and I'm proud of you. Even though we're going through this tough season in our life, even though we're going through this, this hard time, this painful season, I am still overflowing with joy because of what I believe about you and because of your faith. And yeah, i got a lot of work to do. And I don't feel like that when Chris and I are arguing, I ain't going to lie. But I wish more of us could talk like that to each other. You know, I'm so tired of hearing those things. I'm just telling you how it is. I'm just trying to be honest. That's just me or the dreaded UBU. See, Paul was in the right here. He knew he was right, and he knew that the Corinthian church was wrong here. They were wrong for not only questioning him, but also for not dealing with the sin that was going on in the church. And yet Paul, Paul never shamed them. Paul never, never vented on them. Paul loved them so much that he was willing to put his own personal feelings, his own personal desires, his own aside. Put away those desires to prove himself right, that he put their needs above his own. His biggest goal was to help them not prove his point, not prove that he was right. And dads, man, I don't mean to call you out here, but for my conscience sake, I don't have a choice. I want to let you know that your words greatly matter. Your tone greatly matters. A lot of us use tone and not words, right? Some people use harsh words. Some people got that daddy look that, you know. But we have to remember that we are called to lead our families by loving them the way Christ loved the church. And what did he do for the church? He literally sacrificed himself for the church. And we are called to lead by putting their needs and other people's needs above our own. Do we always put other people's needs in front of our own? I didn't. Not like I should have. I did a lot, but not always. See, we are not called to lead our families some of the time. We are not called to lead our lives some of the time. We are not called to lead in our jobs some of the time. We are called to lead all of the time. And when we let anger or our temper, or our attitude, or our selfish desires, or our pride drive us instead of letting what's best for our families drive us. We are not only making it more difficult for them to trust and obey God, we are making it more difficult for them to even trust us. 
Moms and everybody else in here, man, this is true for you too. The more you vent, the more you say things out of anger, the more you learn, the more they learn to not listen to everything mom says. She's just in a mood. See, what happens is they hear our words, and then they think, I know she doesn't mean that part. She's just venting. But the sad part about it is then they have to figure out which parts were true and which parts weren't what to believe and what not to believe. And if we're having a hard enough time as adults, can you imagine how hard our kids are having? In my experience, there is a lot of extra weight and a lot of extra burden on ourselves and on our family when dads and husbands are harsh. Dads, we need to be wise about how we use our words, how we use our looks, how we use our emotions. What if instead of proving our point, we make the number one goal helping the other person? listening and understanding so that we can help instead of getting defensive and picking a fight just to prove our point. What happens is we get into self-preservation mode and we get out of leading our family and leading and serving mode. See, once I realized that listening to Chris was more important than getting my point across or proving my point and making her understand what I was trying to say, the better it was for both of us. See, Paul gives this amazing gift to the church here. His example of how to handle this. How he lovingly tried to restore them instead of ripping a snot out of them because they did something wrong. Because of the mistakes they made. Things like this, when people react like this, this changes relationships. This changes families and this changes lives. If we simply allow the Holy Spirit to free us from slavery and selfishness. See, Paul now finishes what he started in chapter 2. He started off telling them this timeline right after he wrote his first letter to the Corinthian church. And if you remember, he was telling them to repent and, and to call the people that were in the church sinning to repentance. And instead of finishing the timeline, he wrote the last four and a half chapters explaining his reasons for not coming. You know, a couple months ago, Jarrell asked Mark a question when they were doing that interview-style messages. They were in chapter 2, and Paul mentioned an open, an open door in Troas, but he had no peace of mind. Jarrell said, shouldn't all Christians have peace? And why didn't Paul stay if there was an open door? See, Paul left off the story, but now he comes back to it. So when they came to Macedonia, which is the region that Troas is in, they were tired and they were afflicted everywhere, both from people on the outside and persecuting them and their own fears on the inside. Not just fear of, of what people would do to them, but fear of how the Corinthians were going to respond to this letter. Because Paul still hadn't heard anything from them. He hadn't heard anything from Titus, who he sent to them. And now we see that Titus finally did come. And he met with Paul. And he brought some news and some much-needed comfort. Not just the fact that, that Titus was alive and well, but that he brought the good news about the Corinthians and how they responded to Paul's letter. Paul said there was a time when he regretted even sending that letter. But because, and, and it was because he was afraid, right? He was afraid of how they were going to respond. He was afraid of hurting them. But now he definitely didn't regret it because he sees that this letter of rebuke and correction didn't lead to stubbornness. It didn't lead to pride. It led him to repentance. See, the goal of, God, of a godly grief and sorrow is not pain, although pain usually accompanies it. The goal is actually peace. Peace with God and peace with others. 
through repentance. Paul gives them and us one of the clearest descriptions in the whole Bible of grief or sorrow and repentance. See, repentance is always accompanied by grief. But grief is not always accompanied by repentance. Prime example is Judas versus Peter. Judas and Peter, they both betrayed Jesus. They both experienced extreme grief, right? Judas gave the money back that they gave him to betray Jesus. He literally tried to stop it. Peter, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And he literally cried for hours. But the grief in Judas led him to kill himself. The grief in Peter led him to repentance. And this explanation is so important. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not take away grief. There is still sin in this world. And there is still hurt in this world. And there is still pain in this world. And there is still sorrow in this world. And there is still death in this world. And we, have, we feel the effects of that sin every single moment of every single day. Hurricanes ripping through communities. Horrible building practices that leave condos killing hundreds. Racism. Injustice, poverty, greed, selfishness. Kids lying to their parents, parents lying to their kids, spouses lying to each other. Businesses putting profit above people. The list goes on. See, we experience the consequences of the sin that others commit and the sin that we commit. Every human being in the world experiences grief, pain, and sorrow. And one day God's going to take this away when Jesus come back and he ushers in his eternal kingdom in heaven. When there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more pain and no more sorrow, no more tears. But until that day happens, we live in a world that's full of those things. So how we respond is so important. And it is totally up to us. We have the choice on how we're going to respond. When Chris tells me how much I hurt her, because I was insensitive or by being so selfish. I feel that weight and that, and that sorrow of her being upset with me or her not being nice to me at the moment or the tension and the awkwardness of our relationship. And I feel that grief sometimes. And sometimes I still don't repent. I get so stubborn that I want to try to get rid of that awkwardness without letting go of my pride or admitting I'm wrong. And that don't always work so well. But then everything starts to sink in, right? And I feel even more weight, and I feel even more sorrow because I realize that I hurt the person that I love the most in the world. And that's worldly sorrow. When we feel the consequences of our sin, we feel the pain from the lies or the injustice or the death of a loved one or parents that let kids down or kids that let parents down or the lies or where we experience the consequences of our own sin. And I think our culture right now is in the very midst of just that. We have been experiencing the consequences of sin. We lost the true value of human life, making the economy more important than the obedience to God. Think about it. We have removed God from our schools. We have removed God from our courts. We have removed God from our entertainment. We've removed God from our music. We've removed God from our government. And our families have removed the Bible from our very homes. And we've been experiencing the consequences of this, this removal for the last few decades. And now, instead of turning to repentance, 
We just try to get rid of the guilt, and we no longer call evil evil. You can live however you want. You can look at your child as a choice and not a human being. You can get out of that marriage, no questions asked. You can cheat people and make a profit and call it good business. You can make whatever music or whatever movies you want. You can do whatever you want. Everything is tolerable with the exception of one thing, making something intolerable. See, people, we didn't get rid of sin. We accepted it and we called it something else so that we don't have to turn and feel bad and repent. But as Paul says and as Judas experiences, man, that only leads to death. Paul and the Corinthians can look and be confident that they have responded well and are at peace because they have a number of things. They had earnestness. That is a willingness to, to be honest, to admit what you did was wrong. Admit the honest truth. Admit what's going on with the situation. Don't justify your actions. Don't twist it to make it okay. Be real. Be authentic and be honest. They see eagerness. An eagerness to make God and Paul happy. To make them proud and be ready to clear your own name. To be ready to get rid of the, the consequences. Their motivation was a desire to be at peace with God and at peace with others. They see indignation at the sin that you allowed and you committed. Anger at the sin that we allowed. Yes, there were false teachers, and yes, they were twisting Scripture, and yes, they were manipulating us. They didn't make us sin. We chose to sin. We sinned, and we're accountable for that. They see fear, reverence, and respect for God, and fear of the consequences of things left unchanged. See, this isn't being scared of God. It's the admiration and the understanding of who God is, how good he is, and the desire and the respect to make it right with him and to please him. They see longing and zeal. To be at peace with God and to be at peace with each other. It's not something they put off until next year. It's not something they put off until the false teachers confess. It's that they start now, they begin, and they're all in 100% with their part. They see punishment of the actual sins that were committed. Part of zeal was to actually deal with the sin, not just let it go. Do you see these things as a Christian? Do you see these things in your life on a regular basis? Because repentance should be a regular part of a Christian's life. I repent every single day. Judas and Peter both were disciples of Christ. One chose repentance, and the other chose worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow leads to death. And if you are not able to make room for people or to make room for repentance in your life consistently, then diagnose it and fix it now. Are you not being earnest? Not being honest about the sin? Calling it something else? It's okay if we do this. It's okay if we do that. Call it what it is. Do you even recognize it as sin anymore? Or do you justify it? Do you have fear and reverence for God that is showing this longing and this zeal to correct it and to repent? Do you actively correct, punish, or make adjustments and sacrifices to get rid of that sin? 
instead of just saying, hey, I'm sorry. The book of Matthew says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. Jesus was serious about loving sinners, man. But he's also serious about getting rid of the sin in our lives. Are you willing to get off social media or stop looking at Netflix if you're consistently viewing things that you shouldn't view? Watching things you shouldn't watch. And it's causing you to sin. Are you willing to confront that, that gossip that you continue to be involved in? To call it out and repent for your part of it and remove it? Are you willing to cut that relationship that you know you shouldn't be in? Or stop going to the bar if you need to? Are you willing to confront the sin of a spouse or somebody in the household even though you know it's going to cause conflict and tension? Are you willing to cancel that porn account or get accountability software? See, we are experiencing the consequences of sin and sorrow all around us. Is it leading you to repent, which brings life? Or is it leading you to guilt and remorse and bitterness, justifying sin, which is going to lead to death? Remember, Paul sent Titus to take that letter to the Corinthians. This was not an easy assignment. This was not an easy task. He's taken a letter of rebuke to a whole church. He probably experienced a lot when he delivered this. And we don't know if their repentance was right off the rip or whether it took some time. But when Titus finally shares this message with Paul, Paul could see it on his face. He could hear it in his voice how happy he was. Their repentance also made a positive impact on Titus. See, when somebody comes to me and they have a problem with another person, we almost always go back to, to Matthew and talk about how Jesus said to deal with these things. Go to that person one-on-one. -on -one. Out of love and not with guns blazing. And usually the first thing that person will do is start telling me all the reasons why he shouldn't. That it's not going to work, they're not going to be receptive, blah, blah, blah. See, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not accountable for what you do. I'm not accountable for how you respond. But I am accountable for what I tell you and what I do. And if I know that Jesus is telling me to go to some person one-on-one -on -one and I don't, then I am choosing to disobey God himself. If I go with malice and if I go with evil intent, if I go to shame them or to make them feel horrible, guess what? I'm accountable for that. And Jesus has been so good to me. He is so worth it that my response to him should be nothing more than obedience. I don't care how embarrassed you got to be. We're all wrong. So the person goes to the other person to be obedient to Christ, right? And hopefully they experience repentance and restoration. But typically not thinking it's going to happen, right? And oftentimes they come back and they're excited about the results. Man, things went so much better than I thought they would. Not always, but most of the time. And I'm just as excited about the restoration and the relationship as I am to see what's happening to this person. They were obedient and I got to see what God's going to do to them and do through them because they were just simply obedient. And because of that relationship 
not just between them and the other person, but them as God. And God is so much stronger now. And a person's faith has grown. And that's what Paul's experiencing here, and that's what he's communicating. Our obedience to God does a lot more than anything we could ever imagine. The amount of people that see it that we don't even realize is humbling. It makes more of an impact than you'll ever know, and that's why our big idea is real simple. Don't let today's sorrow keep you from God's peace tomorrow. And I'm here to tell you, if you don't have that peace, we have made it just as simple as simple can be. You can text your name to the number on the screen, 734-304-7248. You can shoot an email to next at southpointccc.com. You can talk to people up front after the service. If you're ready to follow Jesus, if you're ready for a peace that you'll never ever be able to comprehend, if you don't have that yet, find somebody. You can't find nobody. Find me. I'll help you. If you need somebody to pray with you, if you want to get baptized, if you want to join the church, whatever it is, we are not meant to do this alone. We're meant to be here for each other. And I know it's scary and I know it's hard, but you have no idea how it's going to change your life. Father God, thank you for every single person in here. Lord, I just ask your Holy Spirit to fill this room. And if there is nobody in this room, if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, I ask you to allow your Holy Spirit to nudge them so that they can do something about it today. Not for fear, not for what could happen, simply because having a relationship with you is better than anything I've ever experienced. Having forgiveness, having a relationship with the creator of the universe is something I can't even explain to people. Father God, fill this room. Be with us so that we can glorify you in the things that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on and stand. Let's continue our time of worship.